Hello everyone, this is your host Ramakrishna from Usha Investment Group LLC. Welcome back to Multifamily AP360, the show where we discuss 360 degrees views on mindset, passive and active multifamily investing. For those who are looking for tips, strategies, best and challenging experiences. Also, I request you to share it with those who might benefit and leave a rating and review. Today's our guest is Neil Bava from Grow Capitas. Welcome, Neil. Well, thanks for having me on the show, Rama. Sure, Neil. And it's a great honor uh, to interview you. Thank you very much. And a little bit about Neil. Uh, Neil Bava is a technologist who is universally known in the real estate circle as the math scientist of multifamily. Besides being one of the most in-demand speakers in commercial real estate, Neil is a data guru, a process freak, and an outsource outsourcing expert. Neil Treats is $1 billion multifamily portfolio as an ongoing experiment in efficiency and optimization. The math scientist uh, lives by two mantras. His first mantra is that we can only manage what we can measure. His second mantra is that data beats gut feel by a million miles. These mantras and a dozen other disruptive beliefs drive profit for his 700 plus investors. So with that, Neil, you want to add anything to your background? I, I just want to point out that while I do real estate, that's the day job. My day job really is applying technology and big data analytics to real estate. So five years from now, I might be on a different podcast that has nothing to do with real estate, but I'll still be applying technology and big data. That's my passion. That's what I like to do. It creates absolutely outstanding results in real estate. So I've tried doing using big data in other fields and I've not had similar returns. So I think the the application of big data and technology to real estate produces fantastic amounts of profit. Awesome. And your second mantra, data beats gut feel by a million miles. So would you elaborate a little bit on that and also would, uh, with uh, one or two examples? Yeah, so what happens is that human beings are extraordinarily bad at at quantifying their gut feel. So we say, you know, I got older, my gut feel got better. That usually is not the truth. If you read books about this topic, our gut feel really doesn't get that better over time, maybe slightly better, but not much. What actually happens is we get better at forgetting every time our gut field sucks. So every time we use our gut feel and we get nothing out of it, or it proves to be completely wrong, we are awesome at forgetting it. And every time our gut feel is correct and it makes us money, we remember it for decades. And that's why we believe that our gut feel gets better over time. But when I quantify, when I when I basically do make a gut feel based decision, usually in the hindsight, it's like, oh, yeah, that was more of a gut feel based decision. I actually go write it down in notes on my iPhone and then I will go back and look at it a couple of years later. And my track record is truly awful. In fact, if I gave a darts to a monkey and asked him to throw darts at a, at a you know, dartboard, they, the monkey would have probably done better than Neil Bauer. So I've come to realize that, you know, gut feel just simply is an awful way of, you know, making investment decisions. So I'm constantly uh, building systems in my company that are designed to prevent anyone's gut feel from, you know, assisting in a decision. That's what I mean about. Cool. And thank you for sharing that. So let's jump into macro level stuff. So what mm -hmm. is your, your outlook on the economy and how will it affect the multifamily market? 
Well, the economy is going to go into a recession. At this point, I, I estimate a 100% chance that the economy will go into a recession, but it might take longer than most people feel. So uh, you may have heard recently that we've had, you know, Q1 and Q2 GDP was negative. Therefore, most people think we are already in a recession. That's not true because most times when the economy is in a recession, we've had two quarters of negative GDP growth. But the reverse is not true. The reverse is, you know, just because we have two quarters of GDP growth doesn't mean we are in a recession. The answer is usually yes, but not always. This is one of those unusual cases. The economy is nowhere close to being in a recession. In the last three months, we produced 500,000, 400,000, and 400,000 jobs. That's 1.3 million jobs in a quarter. Well, there are years when we're lucky to get that many jobs. So the, the economy is producing an astonishing level of jobs. Wage inflation is very high, 5.1%, which means that people are not just getting jobs, they're getting paid more, which hasn't happened for a long time, right? So 2% wage inflation was considered to be pretty awesome, but now we're at 5.1%. So there's plenty of jobs. There's 11 million jobs open. This is the first time in American history that we have 11 million jobs open when the unemployment rate is 3.5%. So we can't be in a recession. Also, the economy is fighting the Fed. As you can see, the Fed keeps throwing thunderbolts at the economy and the economy says, we don't give a damn about your interest rate increases. We're going to keep spending. And that's why employers continue to hire people. So the economy is very strong and it's fighting the Fed. So I don't expect it to go into a recession very quickly. So I, I expect the recession is going to be maybe Q1, Q2 next year. When it really feels like a recession, you see a lot more people getting laid off. And I know recently you may have heard about people getting laid off. It's nothing. The, the, in, a, in an actual recession, the number of people getting laid off is about 100 times higher than what you're hearing on the news. It's just they like clickbait. So they, they, you know, every time there's a, somebody raises off 100 people, you see a big article. It doesn't mean anything. So bottom line is almost 100, well, I would say 100% chance at this point of a recession because the, the Fed, because the economy is fighting the Fed and sometimes the economy chooses to fight the Fed and sometimes not. It's fighting it this time. So the Fed will keep raising interest rates aggressively until the end of the year. Um, and then economy goes into a recession and then the Fed, Fed will later in next year, maybe Q3, Q4, start cutting interest rates. And that's the most important message that I have for you. Most people Almost everybody that listens to these things knows the first part of what I said. So that's not very useful. Everybody knows that the Fed is raising interest rates and everybody knows that that's probably going to put us, pull us into a recession. What no one really understands it, that the Fed, its job is to gut punch the US economy to beat us to our knees, but they don't want to kill the patient, right? So the, the Fed also does something else after it brings the economy to its knees. It pulls us back up. It's the Fed that makes a stand again. So if you look at the last 61 years where the Federal Reserve has raised interest rate nine times, sharp up, sharp down. Don't ever forget the sharp down part because that's the Fed's job is not to raise interest rates and leave them there. They haven't done that. Check history the last nine times. Show me any evidence where the Fed goes sharp up and then just stays there for a while. They've done it once and that was in 2007 and it led to the Great Depression. So they are well aware that having rates plateau at the top is a way to kill the economy, not to cool it. The Fed's job is to cool the economy, not to kill it. So we're going to go sharp up and sharp down. Cool. And thank you for sharing that information. And what are the top three things or trends that you are seeing in the multifamily market that, that could impact investors? Well, first is what you should know now is prices are down. So we're we're now seeing price reductions between eight and 12% compared to prices in January. So in my mind, 
you know, Jan was kind of the peak of the prices, uh, maybe de December, Jan, November, these were extraordinarily high prices. So we're, we've seen the markets adjust by eight to 12%. That's good, by the way. Um, a lot of people might say prices going down is good. Yes, it's good because if prices don't adjust, then bubbles burst. Bubbles bursting is 10 times more painful than price adjustment. So I'm pretty happy that prices are down. It affects me because some of the properties that I was trying to sell, I've decided not to sell anymore because I sort of missed that peak. With other properties, I was able to hit the peak. So we we have, you know, we've had lots and lots of properties that made a truly insane amount of money in Q4 and Q1, you know, Q4 last year, Q1 this year, because we did hit the mark with those properties when we put them up for sale. So some of them didn't, well, we'll just wait for a year and a half because there will be another opportunity in the second half of this year. I like recessions because they adjust the economic cycle, they prevent bubbles. And most importantly, I always know what happens six months after a recession starts, the Fed starts cutting interest rates. That creates opportunity for us if you know that's going to happen. So I know my window for sale will be somewhere in Q3 and Q4 next year. So I'm just going to run my properties until then. So if you're in existing properties, make sure that your syndicators are not panicking. They will get another chance next year. So, you know, second, you should know rent growth in the U.S. is very, very strong, right? So it's finally, I just received the July uh, rent report this morning. It's beginning to slow, but by historical standards, it's 2x, 3x higher than historical standards depending upon the market. So that is protecting the multifamily economy. And the fact that prices have gone down is protecting us. That hasn't happened for single family. We haven't seen an 8 to 12% price reduction on single family across the board. We've seen some markets fall by 5, 6, 7%. And it's very uneven. Why? Because the single family market is, is not professionally driven. In the multifamily market, the moment interest rates go up, lenders give you less money. Why? Because your income didn't magically grow just because interest rates went up last month. So with your income staying the same, they don't want to give you more money to buy a bigger property. They want to give you less money. And so we've seen bank yields fall, and that basically forces prices to go down. So the market self-corrects. The multi-single family market is not like that. There's plenty of comps around. And so prices still keep going up when they should be going down. So there's there's a lot of trouble coming for the single family market in the coming months. Yeah, definitely. I can see that, you know, uh, from commercial side, uh, now we are going with a lot of low LTVs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, you know, that low LTV piece obviously also is going to drive that down. What that really means, in case you don't know, is before we could leverage properties up to 70 or 75%. That means that if it's a $10 million property, you can get a seven or seven and a half million dollar loan. Today, you can only get a six and a half million dollar loan. Once again, something that drives down prices because now you have to raise more equity or you basically just have to pay less for the property. And so it's a combination of both. We are now raising more equity than we were before and we are now paying less than we were paying before. So the market is self-correcting, which I think is awesome. Uh, this is why I like being in the multifamily market, even though to some extent, single family is more profitable. Uh, it's just because multifamily is more predictable and obeys the rules of money uh, quicker than single family does. Nothing can not obey the rails, uh, rules of money, but it takes the single family market a while to adjust, which makes it more susceptible to bubbles. Got it. Got it. So what other trends you are looking in multifamily space or commercial space like PTR, any other stuff? So the first thing we are seeing is that 2020 changed mindsets of an entire planet. We've seen, you know, things like 2008, that was an American recession. Most people don't realize China was still growing at double digits during that time. So was most of Asia. So 2008 was mostly an American recession, right? So affected other countries a little bit. 
COVID affected people living in Siberia. People living in an island of a population of 10 were affected by COVID. COVID is the first true black swan event in, in modern world history. And the biggest impact that it has had for real estate is that people now want more space at home. They want uh, you know, offices, they want an extra room, they want to live in a home because for them, for a lot of people, especially young people, a home was simply a place to sleep. The rest of their life was outside. That has been turned upside down. And I don't think that changes just because we no longer have COVID restrictions. We've not seen any evidence of it changing. It basically, once your mindset changes over a two year black swan event, it's not gonna snap back. So we will see very strong demand for larger properties. So the first trend is that properties with one bedroom and studios are a little bit out of fashion today. The rent growth is really in the two bedroom space and the three bedroom space. Second, townhomes are hot, 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 hot. Any, any asset, any multifamily asset, even older ones from the 60s that have townhomes, my God, they're red hot. They're going to see incredible rent growth. And the third part is, since there's not enough townhomes around in multifamily, you know, one, in, one out of 20 properties has townhomes, the BTR asset class is red hot, but single family BTR is out of fashion because it's too expensive. Construction costs have gone up so much that nobody can really build single family built to rent today and break even or make money. So a lot, a lot of people are shelving those projects and then redoing their plan to build townhomes. Townhome costs are lower. Uh, you still get the same square footage as single family, but you're, you're, you're getting a lot more density and you're getting a smaller backyard, a smaller front yard, but at least it's a front yard and a backyard and you're living in your own house. So what we are seeing is absolutely shocking levels of money pouring into BTR, right? So normally when a billion dollars goes into something, it's something to be, you know, it's like, wow, a billion. We have seen $64 billion flow into built to rent since March, 2020, $64 billion unlevered. What that means is that $200 billion worth of real estate can be built or purchased using those $64 billion. So BTR in my mind is, is Bitcoin in 2010, right? Every single person listening to this is, I wish I'd known what Bitcoin was going to be like in 2010. Well, that's BTR in 2022. So it's an absolutely astonishing trend. This doesn't mean you should stop buying value add. I, I wanna point out to you that, that this isn't an either or situation. It would be a really terrible thing if that's what you thought. Value add multifamily has very, very strong fundamentals because I am still not seeing any evidence of overbuilding in the multifamily space. Typically, we need about 330,000 apartments a year. If you look at the last three years, we built roughly 330,000 a year. So we're keeping up with demand. We're not, we're not keeping, we're not below demand, we're not above demand. The problem is that in 2011 to 2015, we created a shortfall of apartments because we built very, 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 very little in 2011 to 2015 timeframe. And we created a 600,000 apartment shortage. We have made no dent in that whatsoever in the last seven years. So since 2016, construction picked up and you know was right around that 300,000 mark for the last seven years if you average it out. But none of those years did we make any dent in that shortage. So that 600,000 apartment shortage is really driving our rent increases. And nothing has changed there in the last year simply because the Fed raised rates. The problem, the supply issue is the same. So, and what's your outlook on like affordability issues, you know? Uh, affordable, sorry? Affordability because of rent hikes. 
uh, in, in impact. On so our- affordability is a genuine challenge. And so the what's changed in my mindset is I don't really want to buy class C's in areas that already have high rents, right? So if you've seen a 25% increase in class C rents in the last three or four years, that's a dangerous thing to do at this point in time because pushing those rents higher is very difficult. It's very problematic because what we've seen is classy people with 400 bucks in the bank um, are, you know, tend to be more resistant to hikes than class B and class A because those people have not higher incomes and a lower percentage of their income is going towards rent. Just so you have these numbers, the average class C tenant is now paying over 35% of their income in rent. The average class B and class A tenant is paying about 24%. So there's room to grow those rents or continue growing those rents for Bs and As, not for Cs. Even though C class C rents grew faster than class A and class B rents from 2014 to 2020. So they were, they were, you know, everybody wanted to buy class Cs. I was telling people to buy class Cs. But since 2020, class C rents are growing half as fast as class B and A, half as fast. Why? Affordability. Yeah, yeah, definitely agree on that one. Uh, would you share any of your best uh, investing experience, multifamily investing experience so far? So the, the one, ex- or one experience, and maybe there's two of them, is, you know, you look at these projects and you say, you know, back in, I don't know, you know, 2017, if I was buying a property for 55000 a door, that property now is worth $150,000, 180000 a door. Obviously, rents haven't risen by that much, right? So we're all paying or overpaying for these properties. So one of the things that I've been obsessed about is finding what I know as what I call super value add. Super value add is a very unique thing. It's very rare. I think there's maybe three uh, companies in the US that know how to do super value add. Super value add is the process of buying buildings that are built in the 1980s or 70s that are high quality buildings. They're, you know, there's nothing wrong with them. They're pretty awesome. But when they built them, land was so cheap in those markets that they didn't build all the units. They built to a lower density. And so now you can actually take a piece of that property and build more units. So for example, I had a 151 unit property in Dalton, Georgia. Dalton is a suburb of Chattanooga, lots of land available. So there was this property that basically was zoned for 237 units but only had 151. So I went in there as a regular value add, property was doing great, distributing 8% cash to investors. One year after I realized, okay, this is an awesome property. I mean, delinquency is zero. So I went back to my investors, raised another $3 million, built 29 units. That boosted my NOI by 55%. And I sold the property at a massive 50 plus percent uh, profit. I did the same thing with the storage property. So it was a storage property, had a bunch of land. I went there and I built carports. I put solar on top of the carports, gave federal uh, you know, benefit, tax benefits to my investors. Now, remember, this is not depreciation. It doesn't get recaptured when you sell the property. It's a forever rebate. So solar carports with, you know, carports with solar on top of them. And then I was able to sell the property for massively more and make about 50% annualized for my investors. Super value add is something that syndicators need to look at because the truth is this, the party is not ending, but this party is just not as fun as the party in 2018, 2016, or 2014. So there's gotta be a way to juice the party. We we have to get clever. We have to get smarter with our investors. I'm opening a solar company 
to put solar panels on roofs because of the new bill that just passed, the Build Back Better, gives lots and lots of solar credits, lots and lots of solar incentives. And so now I'm going to have two companies, basically, or three, a construction company, which I've had for a long time, a you know syndicator company, and a solar company. I think that those are ways of juicing the returns for investors that we have to be clever on because the returns, they're falling. The cash flow, it's falling. Yeah, definitely. And would you also share any challenging experience? Um, yeah, so I, you know, timing I think is is a is a big one. But um, 2018, I bought a single family land piece of uh, single a single family unit. So it was a uh, you know I paid a million and a half for it, and I I think it was in late 2018. And my goal was within a year to demolish it and build seven townhomes. So it was a personal project. I didn't have any investors involved. It's just my cash. And four years later, the city still hadn't finished permitting, right? So when you do new construction projects, you have to stay away from blue states. You have to go to states that have very efficient, smooth processes. So what I learned is before I do new construction, the first thing I'm looking for is not the cost of the land, not the cost of the construction. I'm not even looking at demand. You know what I'm looking at? Is this city permit friendly? Got it. Yeah, important. <laughs> And what is your current focus, Neil? So we we divide our ask, you know our efforts into two. Um, value add multifamily continues to be a big focus for us. We we spend thirty percent of our investor equity on that. So and the remaining seventy percent goes into some form of construction. Why? I don't like construction. I don't think anybody likes construction, right? I, I can't find anybody that says I really love multifamily development. The problem is it's hard to create value today. When I take a multifamily building that used to cost $55,000 a door, now I'm paying $150,000 a door for it four years later, all I can really do to it is do some lipstick on a pig, you know, spend $8,000 a unit and make it look a little bit better and try to bump up rents. I'm not producing a huge amount of value. But when I take a piece of unzoned land, a piece of dirt, and then I zone it, then I permit it, then I build a building, then I lease that building, then I, you know, fix the loss to lease. I'm producing an absolutely massive amount of value, an absolutely massive amount of value. And it was new construction was out of out of fashion three or four years ago because you could make so much money on value add. Why would you put your money into new construction and wait for two or three years to get cash flow? Today, everybody wants it. Why? Because people are realizing there isn't that much money in value add. A typical value add property today, if you look at the truth, by, by the way, not some nonsensical performa, produces 3% cash flow in year one, if you're lucky. 3% in year one, 4.5% in year two. That's not a lot of cash flow to lose. Yep. And so a lot of people are now looking at construction again because they realize I can get much higher profits as long as I'm patient for two and a half years. Yep. Cool. And any, any of your personal habits that are helping you to be successful? Um, I do what is known as the Miracle Morning. So, you know, Miracle Morning may not be the best book in the world, but I guarantee if you do Miracle Morning for six months, you'll find your best book. Everyone has a best book. Your best book's different from mine, but the Miracle Morning enables you to get there. So if there's one book in the world that I think changes more lives than any other, I think it's the Miracle Morning. Good. And any, like, share any one personal learning or personal decision that has played a part in creating massive impact and Power, powerful shifts in your own life? Data, math. I mean, I am a data scientist. 
and it affects everything that I do. I mean, one of my most popular videos is about how I increase the yield of my tomatoes by 300% using data science in the backyard. And I think those, what I, what I want to point out is that the use of data should become an integral part of everything that you do, right? Do look at math. I even do math when I'm trying to get to an appointment, I'm calculating how many minutes away I am and what I could do to increase the chances of getting there on time. Things like that. I, you know, I, I just find that people give a lot of lip service to data, but if you're in this business, you should be obsessed with data. Awesome, awesome. And how are you giving back to community, Neil? So uh, lots of different ways. So my favorite way is that we are we plant thousands and thousands of trees each year. We use a a, um, a, a charity called One Tree Planted. So I. Americans are the most polluting people on the planet. We pollute five times as much as anyone else on the planet. And I am a, what is known as an ultra polluter because I fly business class around the world. So I take up three seats on a plane, which essentially is the equivalent of driving 10,000 miles per trip. So I'm an ultra polluter. So I became very, very depressed about that. And then I found one tree planted and I learned that ultra polluters like me, if we plant 3000 trees, that's a small forest, we become net carbon neutral. So I went through the process of making myself, then my family, then all of the employees in my company net carbon neutral. And I continue down that path. I'm now opening it up to my investors. I think that's a, it's a, a phenomenal yield. I'm a data scientist and one tree planted yield in terms of how little you spend. You can you spend a dollar to plant one tree. That yield is absolutely astonishing. Anyone can afford to spend $920 to become carbon net neutral, anyone. But for the rest of your life, you will produce no emissions because these trees give back. Awesome, awesome, and thank you. And how can listeners can connect with you, Neil? Uh, firstly, uh, I'm lucky enough to be the only Neil Bawa on the World Wide Web. So simply type in N-E-A-L space B-A-W-A. If you're interested in different aspects of what I do, type try Neil Bawa best cities. That's where I use data science to predict the best cities in the US to invest in. Or type in Neil Bawa uh, virtual assistance. That's where I explain how I have a massive army in the Philippines and how it 10Xs my company's revenue. Um, or uh, um, things like Neil Bawa climate change, where I predict which cities in the US will win based on climate change and which cities will lose. So those are great places to get started. If you just want an aggregate of all of our content and we produced massive amounts of content, uh, it's at multifamily U. So that's multifamily followed by the letter U.com. So multifamilyu.com. go in there. There's dozens and dozens of webinars about this kind of content. Just you know, subscribe and you'll get invited to uh, a dozen of those webinars a year. Our community loves them. I just did one with 1,100 people watching live. Awesome. And thank you very much, Neil. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on the show. Sure. Thanks for listening to Multifamily AP360. Check out the show notes and grab the freebie on our website, ushacapital.com. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, share it with those who might benefit and leave a rating and review. Follow me on my social media. Thanks for tuning in and I'll see you next time.